0: I pray that this message would be a source of encouragement this morning for each one of us. Thank you for your your goodness, Lord, and it's made such a difference in each one of our lives. And thank you that you are a good, good father. And thank you for taking us into your family and being everything and more that a father could be or should be. Blessed now, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I have a Bible with you open to uh, the seventh chapter of Joshua. Joshua, the seventh chapter. And the fact that every one of us are here this morning proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that failure in our lives doesn't have to be fatal. And the reason why I say that is because we're still here. And we have all failed. Amen. Right? Um, some of us could write a book about it. We could write a book about it. Some of us have. Amen. Right? We could write a book about it. We could teach a class about it. Um, we were saying yesterday, uh, in fellowshipping together, how you never hear anybody say this. You know, you, you hear people all the time saying, well, you know what? I learned, and I learned the hard way. When have you ever heard anybody say, I learned the easy way. It was really easy. No trouble, no problems, no setbacks, no difficulties. We don't learn the easy way. We learn the hard way. And usually the hard way involves some kind or some measure of failure in our lives. But isn't it good to know that God knows that? We need to know that. And I think the reason why so many churches... Um, and so many chairs in those churches are empty today is because failure has taken people out. Failure has um, caused people to derive an identity from the nature of their failure. They believe, you know, it's one thing to fail. It's another thing to be a failure. And to have that as your identity. God said that failure in our lives does not have to be final. It doesn't have to be fatal. And when it's fatal... People don't want to draw near to God because they cannot believe that God could ever accept them on the basis of their track record what they've done or what they haven't done um, Today is Sunday and of course across a country football is big it's right it's awful big right here in Texas too but um back in I want to share this story with you it was back in nineteen ninety one some of you were could remember this, but maybe you don't um it was uh, the story of a, a field goal kicker for the Buffalo Bills, his name was Scott Norwood, and the Buffalo Bills they had a reputation of going to the Super Bowl. I think they did four times, four times they went to the Super Bowl four times they came up empty. Can you imagine that? I mean, they had one of the greatest quarterbacks in history, and he was a phenomenal leader on, on the uh, you know, on, the, on, the, on the the field and he was just an amazing they had a great coach, great team. Four times. Came up empty. But in 1991, well, you got to remember something about the city of Buffalo. They hadn't won a major sports championship since 1965. So finally, they're close. Finally, it comes down to this. In the Super Bowl game, all the field goal kicker has to do is kick a short field goal, and they win. They finally break through. It, It happens. Well... Um, the clock, you know, dwindled down to the final seconds. The television cameras showed you Scott Norwood on the sidelines, you know, practicing his field goal kick. And it was a short field goal, maybe within 20 to 30 yards. Just a chip shot for a, a seasoned field goal kicker like him. Well, they're playing the New York Giants, so it's an all New York Super Bowl, right? New York Giants versus the Buffalo Bills. And, uh, Thirty-seven. Again, yeah. I think he made what was it? Thirty-four of thirty-seven field goals from that range during the season. So everybody's thinking it's it's automatic. And then the whole world watched as he kicked the field goal, and he missed it, wide, right. And by the time he, you know, he looked up from kicking the football, it was just kind of moving off to the right. And sure enough. You know, the wrong sideline erupted. It was the New York Giants' sideline. They had won the Super Bowl. Uh, all of Buffalo groaned. <laughs> and, and this is what the headline read, uh, read like in the Buffalo newspapers. Wide to the right, the kick that will forever haunt Scott Norwood. Wow. Can you imagine? I mean... It's not like he could say, hey, you know, that didn't turn out so well. Can we try it again? Can I get a do-over? You ever, you ever approach life and, and, you know, you make your worst possible mistake and you just kind of wish, like, could we just rewind the tape? Could I try that again? Could I reach a different outcome? Is it possible? And, and the answer is No. The children of Israel here in Joshua chapter 7, they had just came off this amazing victory. God gave them the walled city of Jericho. I mean, they didn't fight and take it. God gave it to them, just like he said he would. They move on to the next part of the conquest as they move into the promised land. And of course, we know what happened. Somebody disobeyed the explicit instructions that God gave them when they went into Jericho. He said, listen... I don't want you to touch anything in Jericho. I don't want you to take anything from Jericho. No spoil. Don't touch the gold. Don't touch these very rich, expensive Babylonian garments. Just stay away from it. And I know that people could say, well, why would God do that? Why not, if you defeat your enemies, why can't you partake of the spoils? I think right from the beginning of the children of Israel moving into the promised land, you know what God was trying to set a precedent? It was this. I don't want you to trust Stuff. I don't want you to trust anything except me. And if they, after defeating Jericho, could take the spoil and have the gold and have the Babylonian garments, maybe they could say, well, this is good stuff, you know. If we keep doing this throughout the you know, invasion, we'll be rich by the time it's all done. And maybe God's thinking, you know what? That might be true, but you would end up trusting stuff instead of me. So he forbid it, and I think with good reason. But somebody disobeyed God. Achan was his name. He took the gold, he took the Babylonian garment, hid it in his tent, thought nobody would find out about it. And uh, of course, it was the means whereby the children of Israel stumbled in the next part of the conquest. They go to a small town. Joshua once again sent out a little reconnaissance mission, sent out some spies, says, now go to the town of Ai. And spy out that city and see what needs to be done before we make our next move in the invasion. So Joshua sent men in verse 2 from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Beth-Avon on the east side of Bethel, spake unto them saying, go up, view the country. And the men went up and viewed Ai. They returned to Joshua and they said, don't let all the people go up. Maybe send two or three thousand to go up and smite Ai. And make not all the people to labor there, but just a few. So there went up about the people, 3,000 men, and then they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai smote of them about 36 men, chased them from the gate even unto Shebarim and smote them in the going down. Wherefore the hearts of the people melted, became as water. Joshua rent his clothes, fell to the earth upon his face before the ark of the Lord, even unto the evening. He and the elders of Israel, put dust upon their heads, and Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you at all brought this people over the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites, to destroy us? Would to God that we had been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. They were devastated. Devastated that this little town of Ai could set them back. And by the way, you know what's so fascinating about this invasion as God took his people into the promised land? They only suffered one defeat. This was it. They only lost 36 men in the entire invasion. And it happened at Ai. And then, of course, Joshua falls before the Lord. I think, you know, (laughs) Scott Norwood could really identify with Joshua. Can can we try this again? And, you know, he's thinking, no, that's it. It, It's the way it's happened and the way it's turned out is the way it's going to be. And then Joshua's prayer as he falls before the Lord, it's right out of the common book of complaint, right? Lord, why have you brought this people over the Jordan River at all? Did you do this to destroy us by the hand of the Amorites? Is that why you did this? Because remember, Joshua spent his whole life up to this point making field goals. Right? He was chosen by Moses to go in and to spy out the land in the very first occasion when Moses spent, sent those spies in. Right, So you know, he, his career has always been a, a story career, a great career, a sparkling career. He shows courage when he steps up as a spy for Moses. He assumes the mantle of leadership when Moses dies. Uh, he didn't hesitate at the Jordan River. He didn't flinch when it came to defeating the people of Jericho. And now he suffers this amazing setback. I mean, you know, that means not only are all of the people looking at Joshua and thinking, mm, maybe he isn't the guy we thought he was. Maybe he's not the qualified leader we hoped he would be. He's failed, He faulted in front of his people, in front of his army, and in front of God. Incredible. And then, no doubt, can you just imagine, he must have begun to hear the voices What are the voices? The voices of self-doubt, fear, insecurity, failure. The same voices that dog us as we make our way through life, right? When you hear like, you know, uh, you you lose your job, Uh, you're not wanted in the workplace any longer, you fail the exam, you drop out of school, the marriage falls apart, the business goes bankrupt. When you fail, you just start to hear those voices. You're not the Christian you thought you were, you know? Why would they want to have you in their ministry when your life is just riddled with failure so often? Those voices, they are hard to deal with unless, of course, we counter those voices with what God has to say about failure. Because failure finds everybody, (laughs) right? I mean, I don't care who you are, unless you are a cadaver, you are going to fail, right? Bottom line, it's that simple. And nobody, here's the interesting thing. Everybody talks about failure. And and everybody talks about how to succeed. But do you ever hear anybody talking about how to succeed at failing? Has anybody ever written the book about how to succeed at failing? Well, praise God, he has. God has. He's written the book. And the book is how to succeed at failing. And how failure doesn't have to be fatal in our lives. It doesn't have to take us out. Listen, to be very candid and honest with you this morning, there would probably be maybe two, three, four, five, I don't even want to keep going with the number, of events that have taken place in my life that should have taken me out. But if not for a finished work message, if not for an understanding of the grace of God, if not for sitting under the teaching of the message, of the gospel, of the grace of God, and that God, as we've heard so often, God, people say, God is the God of the second chance. I would say to the preacher, keep going, because he's the God of the third chance, and he's the God of the fourth chance, and he's the God who says, you know, that we're going to be forgiven not seven times, as Peter, remember Peter said to Jesus, he came to him and said, Lord, my brother sinned against me, how many times should I forgive him? And then I, I think Peter hoped to impress Jesus by saying, how about seven times? Because under the law, you know how many times you would forgive your brother? Three times. So here comes Peter and he says, Lord, how about if I double that and then add one for good measure? How about, almost as if Jesus is going to go, Peter, wow, this, you're setting a new standard here. This is incredible. I've never heard anybody talk like this. You must be the author of grace. And Jesus kind of looks at him. He says, no, not seven. Peter's probably thinking he's going to say six. And not seven. He's going, he says seventy. Times seven. seven. <laughs> Seventy times. And of course, that's an idiom of speech. It means infinitely. But of course, you know, leave it to some of us to do the math. 70 times infinitely. 490. Right? <laughs> and in a, in a marriage relationship, you know, a wife fails, and the husband says, that's, that's 482. You're getting close, honey. You better be careful. <laughs> Got the numbers right. Jesus said 490, and you're getting close. Watch yourself. Right? Come on. Infinitely. God knows. God wrote the book. And He wrote the book for failures. He wrote the book for people like us. Look at the Bible. David, what was he? A moral failure. It's in black and white. Elijah, an emotional train wreck. (laughs) You can read about it. Jonah, the runaway prophet. And the list just goes on and on and on. God uses failure. And he uses failures. And failure doesn't have to be failure. You say, well, you mean God doesn't use perfect people? No, he uses perfect messes. That's what he uses. Because there are no perfect people. You'll never find an impeccable life. And even if you think you've found one, you're only making that evaluation based upon what you can see. And God who looks at people's hearts, he knows. He knows the truth. And God uses these people regardless. And I think maybe God used Joshua's failure just so that he could kind of remind us what to do with ours. Because the story continues, and this is great. I love this. And the Lord, verse 10, look at verse 10. And the Lord said unto Joshua, get thee up. Why are you lying on your face? I think that that's what God says to everyone, every one of his children when they fail. Get up. Get up. Get up. You know, it's it's incredible how when failure strikes the lives of God's children that there are always the critics and those that sit in the seat of judgment and look at them when they fail and they, they come to this strange conclusion. You know what it is? Well, maybe they're not Christians. Maybe they're not really born again. I mean, I just witnessed them stumble. I witnessed them fail. That's like, you know, that's like having a a child, right? And you have a child. You just can't wait for that child to take their first step. And, you know, everybody gathers around and they're getting close and they're holding on to the coffee table. And then one hand is released from the coffee table and then the other hand is released. And then there they are standing free. But then they fall. I mean, imagine if everyone in that home just kind of looked at each other and said, well, they tried. They fell. Then somebody across the room says, maybe they're not human. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe they're destined to crawl through life. Maybe they're going to wear a suit someday and crawl into the business meeting because they failed at walking. What do they do? What do those children do when they fall? They get right back up. I mean, I've recently witnessed this with my own granddaughter and just love to see her take those steps and now forget about it. She's a walking machine. But she has had more than her share of failure, more than her share of falling down. But they just, by nature, they get up. That is the nature, the new nature that Christ has given us. When we fall, we get back up. God said to Joshua, get up. Why are you lying? And, and, And listen, I'm not... I don't want to focus this morning on why failure happened at AI. I want to focus this morning more on what God said about it when it happened. God's answer to failure when it strikes. God's remedy for failure when we experience it. And it's always the same. Get back up. Don't lie on your face. Don't wallow in your failure. Don't give it an opportunity to define you. Somebody once said that failure is like a form of quicksand. You know, you either take immediate action or it sucks you under. And I I think that that's true. We've got to move on as soon as we are able to. And I know that some failure strikes us in a much deeper way than some other forms of failure. But when it strikes, we've got to isolate it. We've got to say, listen, I still have a future. The grace of God is still going to be sufficient for me. I can get up. By the grace of God, I can move on. I mean, listen, we will fail, but does God's love ever fail? It doesn't. It doesn't. God himself has never failed. What does he say in Jeremiah 31, verse 3? Yea, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And we know something about the nature of that love. It is unconditional. It is unchanging. It is eternal. It is as immutable as God himself is. It. Listen, it wasn't... Our behavior, it wasn't our attitude, it wasn't the way we were living our lives that brought God's love into our hearts. It was the fact that he loved us. And if our behavior didn't invite God's love into our lives, then our bad behavior is not going to drive it out. It's that simple. It's just the nature of God to love us. So we need to face failure with faith in God's goodness. That's why I love that song. You're a good, good father. I mean, you just want that song to deeply penetrate your soul, to be reminded of just how good he is. Because you can almost, you know, write another stanza and say, you're a good, good father and I'm a bad, bad child, but you still love me and you don't give up on me and you don't quit on me and you will always be there for me. I love what God said, you know. He said to Joshua, rise, you and all this people. He reiterated it, and I'm going to give you. He already said it uh, so many times, but he just wants to reiterate, I'm going to give you this land. But you need to get up, and you need to just step out by faith once again, because there's no conditions in God's covenant. That's great. I don't have to meet any requirements. I don't have to live up to a certain standard. No conditions to meet. It's just the covenant of God. That means, uh, and I don't plan on it and I don't make a provision for it and I'm not, you know, setting up a schedule that includes failure or it includes making a provision for my flesh. No, not thinking that way at all. But, you know, one of the hazards of living is failure. It happens. And when it does, we just need to hear God say, get up, get up. Why are you lying in your face? Why are you only thinking about what's happened to you? Why are you rehearsing it over and over and over again? I don't have any fine print in my promises, God says. No, no performance language, if you will. God's a promised land offer, think about it, doesn't depend upon our perfection. It depends upon his. Depends upon him. His promises. And what did he keep saying to the children of Israel? I'm going to give you this land. You just need to be in a position to receive it. In God's hands, defeat doesn't have to become a crushing defeat. I'm not saying that defeat doesn't hurt, and I'm not saying that it's not painful. It is. And maybe it's supposed to be. Maybe it's kind of a reminder to us that we don't want to live our lives like that. We don't want to live with that kind of pain. We don't want to live with that kind of heartache. But I love Psalm 37, verses 23 and 24. This is so good. It says, if you fall... It does not have to be fatal. Why? Because the Lord will hold you up. That's beautiful. He's going to be there to uphold us. So we have to believe something about God's grace. What is it? It's greater than my failure. His grace is greater than my sin. It always has been. It always will be. Because if you don't believe that... Then you're going to really experience the true nature of failure. And you know what the true nature of failure is? Unbelief. That is the true nature of failure. Unbelief. When we stop believing God, when we're lying on our face and we don't believe we can get back up, when we have failed miserably and we don't think that there's ever a possibility of us getting back on our feet or getting our footing underneath us again. That's real failure. Because when you're in a place of unbelief, what more can God do for you than what He's already done? We have to avoid that place. Everybody stumbles. I mean, it's incredible, isn't it, that, that some people, when they stumble, they, they just kind of stumble into a pit. And other people, when they stumble, they just kind of stumble into the arms of God. What a great place to stumble. It's like hearing, you know, somebody say, Well, I want to pray, I've learned trying to pray. But every time I pray, I fall asleep. What would we say? Great. What better place to fall asleep than in the arms of your father? Right? I mean, you say, you think to yourself, oh, you wake up in the morning and say, What was I just doing? I was just praying. I felt it. what were you doing when you fell asleep? I was talking to God. That's not half bad. <laughs> That's not half bad. You're gonna go to sleep, go to sleep praying. Right? And then what do we do? We rebound. We are looking. We said it yesterday. We're looking for grace. You know, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. What does that tell you? He must have been looking for it. Hebrews twelve fifteen says, Looking diligently, lest anybody fail to appropriate that grace when it's available. Look for it. Expect it. God cannot deal with his children in this age of grace outside of grace as a means of dealing with us. It's never going to change. And yet, what, what have some theologians done? What have some churches done? They, they turned grace into a maze. You know what a maze is? You know, you kind of you walk down one, but then you come to a dead end and you have to go back this way and, and then you're stuck again. And they want to talk about cheap grace and, and costly grace and you know, and this kind of grace. And they just they've turned it into a maze instead of. Allowing grace to be what it really is, which is amazing. That's what grace is. It's amazing. Don't turn it into a maze. Don't turn it into a problem. Don't turn it into something that you have to perform or you have to exercise your ability to truly understand it and appropriate it. Just receive it. Simply. That's all we have to do. God's, again, he repeated it to Joshua. He said, Joshua, don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. Just arise. And you just think in the New Testament, in Luke chapter 15, remember the prodigal son? Remember when he was at his lowest moment? Remember what he said he would do? He says, I will arise. And I will go to my father. Sometimes that's all it takes to get back on track. What did he really say? I'll get up. I'll arise. I'll turn in the direction of my Father. I mean, I'm not suggesting that any of us at any point in our lives will be able to, in a moment, you know, resolve all of the problems or all of the difficulties and disentangle all the knots of our lives. That might take a little time. But let's start thinking about undoing some of those knots. Let's start thinking about getting on the right track. Let's start thinking with God and moving in that direction. Because we too, We can arise and go to our father, just like the prodigal did, right? And he could have just, he could have been stuck in that pig pen for the rest of his life. He really could have. He could have said, this is it. This is what I deserve. This is what I brought on to myself. This is a result of my own poor decision making. And this is where I will spend the rest of my life. But he didn't because he knew something more about his father. And that's what makes you and I arise. That's that's what makes you and I get back on our feet. That's what makes you and I get up off of our face. We know something more about our father. So again, I love it. You keep reading this book of Joshua, the eighth chapter. You know what God does? He goes, let's go back and revisit AI all over again. But this time, acknowledge me. This time, consult me. Because, you know, it's interesting, they didn't consult God. I mean, they came off of the victory at Jericho almost as if like, wow, we just did that, we're amazing, we're awesome. They kind of patted themselves on the back and said, let's go knock out this other little town. They didn't do anything. God did it for them. He gave them Jericho. All they did is, by faith, follow the simple instructions. Sometimes we can just start thinking, wow, I'm I'm on a roll, I'm really something. Well, expect to just fall flat on your face when you start thinking like that. Learn the valuable lesson. And then, of course, you know, God just kind of regroups them. And he says, you know, when, when you went out the first time, you took a small unit with you. God says, this time I want you to take more men. The first attack involved no tactics. God says, I have a strategy. And then you just kind of follow God's clear instructions. Or to say it in a different way, we acknowledge him in all our ways. And then he directs our paths. And the result is always the same. Victory blessing and then like joshua we just kind of we end up wondering at the god of the second chance we say wow i cannot believe that i was able to do that again just like peter you know he's out fishing all night long jesus steps you know he steps out on the shore and he says peter cast your net the right side come on you know you come into my boat and you tell me how to fish do i go into your carpenter's workshop and tell you how to make things You know, why are you telling me? I'm an expert. I know what I'm doing. So he said, but he did say, he said, we've been out here all night long, caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the nets. And what a catch. What a catch that day. Just because he was, you know, reluctantly maybe, but he said, yeah, okay, I'll do it. I'll try it again. I'll try it again your way. And when we try it again his way, the results are always so dramatically different. I think failure may only be fatal if we don't learn anything from it when we've been there the previous time. But we learn so much. And like we said at the outset of the message, you know, yeah, maybe we did learn the hard way. But I'm so grateful that we learned. I'm so grateful that we've grown. I'm so grateful that we have a deeper understanding of the nature of God. So grateful that we have a a deeper understanding of the depths of God's grace and his love for us. That's what we learn. That's what we learn. We keep coming back and we keep hearing about a God who refuses to let us go and refuses to give up on us and will always be there for us. Put the past in the past and leave it there and maybe do it again. God's way. Acknowledging him. Trusting him. You walk through life and and if all you're occupied with is failure, it kind of makes you walk with your head down. Doesn't it? Always does. What does God say? Just keep your head up. Uh, Set your mind. Set your affections on things above. Not on things here below. And then you know what? The great news is we will be able to celebrate again in the future. We'll be able to smile again in the future. We'll be able to laugh again in the future. We'll be able to do all of those things because sometimes when failure strikes, we think, I don't know if I ever will again. I don't know if I'll ever be happy again. I don't know if I'll ever smile again. I don't know if I'll ever be able to look at other believers the same way. And then we just, you know, God says, really? It's going to change. And the good news is, here's the good news. I'll close with this. The Buffalo Bills flew back after the Super Bowl. Back to Buffalo, and there were thousands and thousands of loyal fans waiting for them. I think it was maybe ten, fifteen thousand people waited for them at the airport and The mayor was there, and they just said, "Listen, we support our guys. you know we, you, nobody likes the outcome, nobody likes to go to the Super Bowl and lose, but hey, at least we were there and They celebrated their team as they came off the plane. They had a big platform set up there at the airport and and then he started to hear the chants. We want Scott. We want Scott. <laughs> you know, it's like, and he was in the back. He was in the background in the stage. He didn't, he didn't want anybody to see him. And he thought to himself, yeah, they want me. They probably want to hang me. That's what they want. They want to have the, a public execution right here at the airport. And when he, when, when he stepped forward, he was kind of, you know, pushed out to the front by his teammates. He got just a rousing... Ovation But it was almost like, yep, yeah, you, maybe you missed the kick, but we want you to know you 're still part of the team and they and they kind of loved him, and you know what he said? It just made all the difference in his life. me and you know I, we think oh that's you know that 's just sports that doesn 't matter, yeah, but it mattered to him. It was his greatest failure, and you know, I, I can really identify with it because. Um, there was, and I think we mentioned it the other night, you know, being a Red Sox fan for most of my life, you know, uh, the closest we ever came, there were several times when we came close to winning a world championship, but the closest we ever came was 1986 against the New York Mets. I mean, we, we had the game. All uh, the first baseman, whose name was Bill Buckner, had to do was to just, just field the ground ball and then take maybe three feet to step on the bag at first and game over, we win the World Series. And the ball went through his legs. It extended that game six to game seven when the New York Mets came back from behind and won the World Series. We were, we were, we were just devastated, but not nearly as devastated as Bill Buckner was. And um, it wasn't until several years later, a few years later, that Fenway Park, which is the storied... Park where the Red Sox play baseball celebrated its 100th anniversary. That they brought back all of the players from, you know, all the ones that were alive that have ever been a part of that history. And then you know what happened? They introduced them one by one, and the next one they introduced, they said, Bill Buckner. And he came out in the field and he got the biggest ovation than anyone else that day. Mm-hmm. But as he got the ovation, <laughs> The tears, he could barely walk out to the field because the tears. And you know, they interviewed him afterwards, and you know what he said? He said, "I finally feel forgiven." That was uh, almost twenty years. Twenty years he lived and embraced the nature of that failure. 20 years, he had to hear everybody joke about it, laugh about it. 20 years of knowing he broke the hearts of so many New Englanders. I know it's just sports, but it it, it almost devastated him. But he said, today, I feel like I'm a forgiven man. We don't have to wait 20 years. When we fail, we fall flat in our face. That's when we need to hear God speak. Get up. There's no need to lie in your face. We'll do it again. We'll learn from the past. We'll grow. There's more than enough grace for you. Failure isn't fatal. Thank God. Because if it were fatal, none of us would be here this morning. Churches across the country and the world would be empty. I And he's not just the God of the second chance, but the third, the fourth, the fifth, and however many we will ever need. Amen? Amen? Lord, thank you for being there for us. And not just when we're good, not just when we're faithful, not just when we're believing, not just when we're consistent, but when we've stumbled, when we've failed, when we've sinned, when we've actually gone out and made a provision for our flesh. Even then, you stand ready to restore us, to forgive us, to cleanse us, to give us another opportunity. Reminding us that though we fall, we will never be cast down. Though we fall, it does not have to be fatal because you promised to uphold us. You promised to keep us. And you promised never to let us go. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.